Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Primate Cast. I'm your host, Andrew McIntosh, and unfortunately, my co-host, Chris Martin, won't be able to join us today because he's off preparing for a week-long trip to Borneo, where he'll be going next week to see wild orangutans. But he will be back for the next podcast, in which we speak with GIS specialist, Dr. Janet Nakoni. But first, in today's interview, we're going to be going back to November of last year when we sat down with Dr. Lisa Jones-Engel. She's Senior Research Scientist at the Washington National Primate Research Center and also a lecturer at the University of Washington. Now, Lisa was in Japan for a workshop put on by faculty here at the Primate Research Institute, and Lisa herself was invited because of her work on many issues surrounding commensalism uh, between humans and primates, specifically in the bidirectional disease transmission between both humans and non-human primates. So in this interview, we'll be talking about some of her work, notably uh, concerning some charismatic diseases such as tuberculosis, as well as the role of Asia in the world of emerging infectious diseases. Now we're gonna begin talking to Lisa about her work at the biomedical centers in the US, the evolution of her research, and towards the end, interestingly, about her take on the role of primatologists in emerging infectious disease research. But first, here's Lisa talking about how she came to be working at the WNPRC. You know, it's, I've had this weird series of trainings that have actually had me in primate centers a, a lot, not doing any biomedical research, but I started out at LEMSIP, which is unfortunately named the Laboratory for Experimental Medicine and Surgery in Primates, which was attached to NYU in upstate New York. And I was the, the, the nursery technician, so I got to, to care for a bunch of baby chimps, and that was, back at the time when you could actually take the chimps home. So I've, I was in LEMSIP at that point. I did some work down in Yerkes. Um, again, and this was more psychological, Bailey's testing in, in the infant lab there as well. And then I was recruited to come up to the primate center and as an anthropologist, when someone af- offers you a job, you, you say yes, <laughs> basically. And so um, I went up there and, and did a postdoc that was part kind of basic laboratory training and, and some basic virology. And I did that for a little while that actually stepped out of my postdoc because there was this interesting thing that you're only allowed to, um, you can only PI your grants if you have a certain um, standing and postdocs don't, don't have that standing. Right. So that was news to me. So I didn't. And I, um, one thing went to another and somehow 10 years have gone by and I'm still at the primate center, which is very odd for someone like myself as a field-based researcher, people say, what are you doing at a biomedical facility? And it's a good question. <laughs> it's a very good question, except that it has really, because I do so much infectious disease work now, being in a facility like this really gives me access to, if I have a question about SRV, I can call my, my diagnostic lab. If if I need some help um, reminding or refreshing on placing a TST in a, a monkey's eyelid, I can talk to veterinary staff and go down and when they're doing routine testing, I can kind of step in there with that. So it's, in many ways, it's really, it's been ideal. Um, but it is, it can be very hard to, to rationalize that, occupying that space in mm. what I do. I want to touch a little bit more on that because you are a primatologist, came through an anthropology yeah. department, and now, of course, most well-known for work in infectious diseases involving primates, particularly zoonotic diseases. 
or anthropozoonotic diseases. So how, how did you make that transition? At what point, um, when you were coming through your degree programs, for example, did you decide that, okay, I need to be interested in disease here, or I am interested in disease? You know, the answer to this is somewhat embarrassing, but it's, <laughs> it's in part the person that I'm married to. So uh, my husband is a, an MD epidemiologist, Gregory Engel, and we've been together for 27 years. And so for a long time, I was trying to figure out how to demelve my interest in, in primates, primate behavior, primate ecology, primate conservation. And then this guy who was doing medicine, and it just, and one day it finally all came together with me, because I'd always been interested in herpes B, actually. It had never made sense to me, having spent my early years in, in Asia, where all these monkeys around and people around all these monkeys and no one was dropping dead from this virus, but I had known from Lemsip and Yerkes that the biomedical community, the laboratory community, is terrified of this virus. Um, and I always, I couldn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up. That fear doesn't hold up out in the walks. It's not the same level of pathogenicity isn't evidenced there. And so I'd always thought about that, and one day it was really, it was like a, a, an epiphany. I thought, well, so I have this whole monkey perspective and this, this anthropological human primate interface thing. My husband has the, the medical side of it. I had spent a lot of time around a lot of veterinarians and kind of been brought up by, by primate veterinarians. It suddenly seemed to me the logical thing to do was to meld all those different skill sets into the, this one project. And I know, I realize how lucky I am that, so I, if I have a question about now, Gregory, what's the difference between H3N2 and H5N1? <laughs> I don't actually have to crack a book. I can simply, when he walks in the house, and I, sweetheart, what's, explain this one to me. Or, I still don't quite understand that sensitivity specificity thing. Can you, can you break that down for me? And that is, that's been, been critical in actually bringing this, this project to the level it is now. And so yesterday when you gave a talk, um I think you were talking about three main, three main say diseases or pathogens or infectious agents. So can you just give us a rundown of that research? I will. Thank you, because this is my, 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 my soapbox right now. Um, tuberculosis in non-human primates, both in wild populations and in, in captive laboratory populations. Enteroviruses, which are um, in the family of the coronaviruses. Polio is the most uh, widely recognized. And the third one is the simian foamy virus. You know, it's got this great name, foamy, and people always ask me, does that mean you start foaming at the mouse when you get this virus? No, it doesn't mean foam at the mouse. But <laughs> it does, it actually kind of describes what the, um, the cells look like in, in culture. The TB one is um, the one that we've really been focusing on a lot. We've, we've published three papers in the last four months on tuberculosis. It's one of the things that we were interested in very early on was markers for transmission from humans to primates. And the original dogma was that non-human primates, macaques, are exquisitely sensitive to tuberculosis. That, you know, you just wave a few bacilli in front of them and they just drop over dead. In laboratories, outbreaks of TB are the things of nightmare. You know, it used to be that 
if an animal um, became TSD positive, that's a little tuberculin skin test in their eyelid, um, the whole room would be quarantined and often the entire room sacrificed in an effort to, to stop this, this bug in its tracks. And again, this kind of goes back to the herpes B thing for me. The dogma in laboratories and reality on the field or in the field, they don't, they're, they're really at odds. So we know there's tremendously high prevalence and certainly um, incidence of tuberculosis in, in Asia. And there are lots of macaques running around in Asia. These macaques are not dropping dead from TB. Why is that? Problem is, trying to place a TST, a tuberculin skin test, in a macaque's eyelid and then follow them at 24, 48, and 72 hours is challenging. We've done it a few times, but it, it's a really challenging thing. So we wanted to come up with another way that would allow us to see if we could detect the presence of tuberculosis. And the nice thing about being a primatologist, I've found when I've doing this over the years, is that because I generally don't, I'm not so steeped in microbiology or in virology or any of the other disciplines, I actually don't get kind of worked up over why something won't work. So I thought, I was um, a graduate student with Alicia Wilbur at the time, and she was using a swab of the mouths of this um, indigenous group in Paraguay, the Ache. She was swabbing their mouths and then doing a, a DNA test, trying to detect the presence of the mycobacterium tuberculosis DNA in their mouths. She was also a biological anthropologist, and her rationale was that TB basically enters and exits the, the body through the oral cavity. You, it's a respiratory pathogen, you can inhale it. We think that human-to-human -human transmission comes from close contact and being exposed by these respiratory droplets. So, it always seemed logical to me that, well, then why wouldn't you be able to find some of this of the organism in the mouth? And so, with her help, we started swabbing monkey mouths. When we, when we would sample these animals in this country, we'd swab their mouths, take the swabs back in this very simple lysis buffer that you can keep at room temperature, which is important, listeners, because you can do this in your own countries, in your own field sites, because <laughs> um, you can keep it at room temperature for a long time. Taking it back and then the laboratory that's a kind of very straightforward um, DNA extraction technique. And then there's this little fragment called IS6110, which is diagnostic for this mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. You only find this fragment in the MTBC complex, or the MTB complex. So we found that in populations um, where the prevalence in the humans population for TB was very high, we saw this very nice epidemiologically consistent pattern in the primates. So for example, in Sulawesi, which has the highest prevalence of tuberculosis throughout all of Indonesia, and Indonesia is already high to begin with, but northern Sulawesi is the highest, in our pet monkeys there, we found, I think it's 70% of those animals, we could detect the MTB um, DNA in their mouths. Um, similarly, in a temple site in Bali where there was an outbreak of tuberculosis, so we actually had both TST tests and our own um, OSP, this oral swab PCR. We could correlate the two. We found a very high prevalence. In a place like Gibraltar, where you have the Sylvanus, where the prevalence of TB in the human population is, is virtually non-existent, 
we couldn't dis detect any um, MTB DNA in the mouths of those monkeys. So for us, it was like, hey, this is a great test to use. So we actually, we went to some of the, the alpha males in the human TV world at that time and said, look what we just found. What do you think this is? And they all, they just got all bushy-bushy and puffed up and said, no, this can't be. Because if a monkey has TB, it will, it will be dead. All the data says monkey has TB, it's dead. Were your monkeys sick? Were your monkeys dying? I'm like, no. Well, then, then you're obviously picking up some other mycobacteria. I'm like, but the American Thoracic Society says I6110 is diagnostic for MTBC. It's what you all use in humans. No, this can't be. This simply can't be. And so for, we actually sat on these data for years. We, we would keep trying to, to farm it out there a little bit. It gets knocked back down by the, the human TV world, and we kind of back up a little bit. But we finally got to the point where, you know, I'm pretty sure we're, we're right on this one. And then we had um, recently a a nice way of looking at this in that there was a case of tuberculosis, quote-unquote atypical tuberculosis, in, in our colony. We just published this one in uh, Emerging Microbes and Infections a couple of weeks ago. So this was an animal that was infected with SHIV, which is that um, human chimeric um, HIV virus, assuming chimeric HIV virus, had weight loss, diarrhea, and so when the pathologist opened the animal up on necropsy, they looked at it and they said, they saw these granulomas. They said, well, this animal is part of an SPF colony, specific pathogen-free colony, which means it doesn't have tuberculosis. So this must be this atypical mycobacteria tuberculosis that, that you see as this normal progression to, to SAIDS. Close the animal back up. And we knew that there had recently been uh, an outbreak of tuberculosis in the colony, a case of tuberculosis in the colony. So we actually asked the, um, the staff, the veterinary staff, for swabs, necropsy swabs from that index animal, plus contacts of that animal in that room while they were still alive. And then we got swabs from, as those animals came to the end of the study and were euthanized, we got swabs from them at necropsy. And lo and behold, in both the animals that were alive and that shared that, that room with the index case while the index case was alive, we could detect the MTBC DNA in their mouths. And on necropsy, in the tissues of those animals, we could detect this MTBC DNA in their mouths. And yet, pathology would say, no, there's, there's no presence of mycobacteria in these, these animals. And so, for us, we thought, wow, this is, this is really important because if you have an animal, and if you, let me back off, the reason that primate centers exist, I think, is to make the, is the primate model. These biomedical facilities use the non-human primate to model infectious disease in a lot of cases. We use it for neurology studies, we use them for colorblind studies, but they're, they've primarily been models for biomedical disease. And your model is really only as good as it is characterized. So if you're infecting an animal with SHIV and you're looking at um, immunological parameters that you can follow in that animal because you think it's infected with SHIV, but if you don't know that animal's actually infected with tuberculosis, 
how do you know what you're seeing in that animal is a result of the infection with SHIV or the vaccination and not this kind of synergistic interaction with, uh, with another pathogen? Um, these, these papers have not won us any friends at the, the Primate Center. Now, we, we understand why, and we will continue to push this forward, but it's, you know, the thing about TB is it's really old. You know, the genome is two and a half, three million years old. It's been around a long time. We used to think it was a crowd disease. Hell, we used to think that human TB came from, from bovine TB. So we're learning a lot as it goes on, but this pathogen's been around a lot longer than there were ever crowds of, of homo. It's an obligate pathogen. It has to have a host in order to exist. It can't just hang out in the soil. So there wasn't a lot of, of human-like homo ancestors two and a half million years ago. There were a lot of primates two and a half years, million years ago. And so for us, it's, it's again, it's given our training, it's easy to think evolutionarily how this, this pathogen could have adapted with these, these different primate populations. And that coevolution means that you're very likely to see different patterns or different manifestations of disease. It's been a challenge, though, trying to to get people to buy into this one. But someone said it will just the data will just keep coming out, and dogma eventually falls in in the in the face and weight of data. Dogma falls, but you just have to keep piling on the data. So there, I, I imagine the reaction to this, in another sense, was or part of the interest would have been in, okay, so now you have a reservoir for human tuberculosis as well in the macaque populations. And um, tuberculosis in other animal populations are currently in the news as well in, in, <laughs> in England, for example, where they have, right. Their, right, well, right. they have their culling scheme with right. the badgers to prevent bovine tuberculosis. But so what is the, the situation like currently then um, with the macaque TB? You're talking about the wild populations? The wild populations that you were sampling from and found this using the oral swabs. Yeah. Um, you know, the, I don't think, I think we're so early on with this that I think one of the call to primatologists has to be, you know, here is a way for us to start looking at this pathogen, and this one is a pathogen, in primate populations. This is a fairly easy test to administer. You don't actually have to anesthetize the animal. You can use these, these chew swabs, these flavored swabs, toss them out, collect it. Um, we're actually working right now on developing assays that allow us to, to strain type the tuberculosis that we're finding. Because if what we're looking at is patterns of transmission, you need something finer than to just say, this is part of the MTBC. We want to know, is this Beijing strain? Is this um, an animal strain? Is this strains we're more likely to see in East Asia versus strains that we're seeing in Africa? So we need a lot more data. We actually need the primate community to kind of step in and, and come forward with that. But I also, there are lots of strains out there and there's evidence to suggest that some of the more ancient strains are less likely to cause disease. Um, I, we don't know yet really what level of pathology is happening in these populations. Certainly the, uh, that outbreak that was in Indonesia years ago, those animals got pretty sick. Um, could that be that there was a particular strain of tuberculosis that was highly pathogenic for macaques? Yes. Could it be that those macaques 
were infected with something else that immunosuppressed them? Possibly. Um, we just, there's not enough research out there being done on this yet to know. Okay, well, we'll definitely look forward to more from you then in that regard. So enteroviruses. Ooh, enteroviruses are, are fun because they're fecal-oral. Um, kind of the upshot of this one was, we were looking in Bangladesh. The, um, the CDC had been, in mid-2000, screening human populations in Bangladesh, looking for, um, as basically as part of the, the polio screening um, projects, any... any um, viruses that were associated with significant um, pathogenicity in, in humans. And so they found in a handful of sick human kids um, these viruses that when they strain typed them actually were more closely related to a simian enterovirus that had been isolated back in the 1960s. So remember in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 70s, we were bringing lots of macaques from the subcontinent over into the U.S. for biomedical research. Um, Mid-70s, that stopped. IPVL managed to kind of shut that down. We haven't really seen any import from um, Indian origin macaques since then. But there were lots of these macaques in um, facilities in the 60s and 70s. And at some point, someone found this SV, EGADS, why can I not come up? SV46, SV41, the simian virus something, some number. Anyway, so the CDC found that this EV 76 and 89 and 90 and 91 that they found in these kids was most closely related on a phylogenetic tree to the simian virus. So they, they came to me and said, Lisa, do you have any idea what's happening with these, these viruses and monkeys in Bangladesh? And I'm like, I don't know, but let's, let's go looking. So we did this study where we looked at like 750 fecal samples from macaques all over Bangladesh. And the upshot of it was, and this, it still shocks me when I think about this. Any of the macaques that were synanthropic, and a synanthropic macaque is basically, a synanthropic animal is an animal who thrives in a human altered environment. Macaques are really good at doing that. When humans change the environment, macaques, they jump right in there and their numbers actually increase. They're great at that. Any macaque that we sampled that was in a close relationship with a human, when we looked at their, their enteroviruses, their enteroviruses looked most like human enteroviruses. We couldn't find a monkey virus in a monkey that was in any, if it was in association with humans. In order to find monkey viruses, monkey enteroviruses in Bangladesh, we had to go to the Dhaka Zoo. And that was the only place that we could find monkey enteroviruses was, were in populations of macaques that were in these captive settings. We found a handful of human enteroviruses in those animals as well. But, so if you're a monkey and you're living with humans, your viruses look most like that, that human population. Your enteroviruses look like that human population that you're around. So the problem with the naming of viruses is often we tend to call um, a virus, depending on what we find it in, we call it that. So if we find a virus in a pig, we call it a pig virus. If we find a virus in a human, it's a human virus. If we find a virus in a monkey, it's a monkey virus. That really doesn't speak to, though, where that, what is the natural reservoir for that virus. So we don't know if, if these highly pathogenic viruses we were seeing in the humans, because we also found those in the monkeys, um, were monkey viruses that had jumped the species barrier at some time, or whether 
these were human viruses that the monkeys have picked up. We, we're, we're back, we're kind of, this is the next stage of this research is to really focus on, on that. So in your, most of the, the research that you've described, uh, particularly when you're talking about trapping like a thousand monkeys or something like that, I imagine the, there's so much breadth. So the, geographically and in terms of the number of, of animals that you're looking at. So how, how do you make that transition then from mass sampling to really starting to understand the biological relationships between those organisms? That is, that is such a good question. And it's, you know, I think for many years in my career, I really, I was out, I was sampling in many, many different places because I, I wanted a picture, a sense of what the landscape looked like. But I really, I, I think I've come to the realization in the past couple of years that it's, it's important to tunnel down much more, more directly. So that's why, so we have a, we're actually in our sixth year in, sixth year in Bangladesh on this evolution and emergence of these simian retroviruses or these, these enteroviruses. And when you, I think to get at some of these questions of how viruses um, emerge and recombine and the effect of this anthropogenic effect, it takes, you have to be willing to kind of set up in a country for a while and really sit down, longitudinal sampling is, is absolutely critical for that. I've, I'll give you an example from um, Singapore. So years ago I published a paper that said we found all of the antibodies, all these antibodies to measles in the Nepal monkey population. In the Singapore population, we didn't find any antibodies to measles. And so I went off and wrote this thing about a risk analysis and risk assessment and why you know, we weren't, um, why that could be the case in Singapore, that we weren't seeing it because the humans are vaccinated and better um, sanitation, blah, blah, blah. And why in Nepal, all these monkeys had antibodies to it. And it seemed to me like a neat little story, except that as I've continued to sample in, in Singapore, I've seen that in, there's this one, this period, this one sampling period, where all of a sudden, boom, I got this, this absolute hit of young animals that were antibody positive for measles. And if I hadn't been doing this longitudinal sampling, um, I could very easily have, have missed that, that little flare that happened because in subsequent years, it's gone. I haven't seen it there. Um, being able to sample the same monkey twice is virtually impossible. Monkeys just, even though I chip all my animals, I think I have a grand total of seven animals out of a thousand plus that I've ever caught twice. So it's really important to, to sample broadly and sample longitudinally, or you're gonna miss these these viruses, these pathogens that may not be frequent, but they give you a real sense of what could be going on in these populations. So that's why for us in Bangladesh, it's been very important that we've been going back every year and we're getting longitudinal samples from these animals. So you see how viruses are being introduced. You're seeing how there's actually um, changes within a virus, within a population over time, but you have to be willing to kind of set up shop in there and you have to have really strong in-country collaborators to make that happen. And so all of this research that you've been uh, doing over the past 10 years at least uh, and continuing to do has happened in Asia. So you had a great point about, or a few great points about why why this is the case. So maybe you could reiterate that here for us. It's, um, you know, Asia, there's no, 
It's not a coincidence that several of our latest emerging infectious diseases have come out of Asia. SARS, Nipah, um, several of the influenzas. It's, Asia has this, this kind of magic combination of incredibly dense human populations, a lot of them increasingly immunocompromised with tuberculosis and, and HIV. It has the infrastructure that allows people and animals and goods to move very rapidly in and out of, of the area. It's got biodiversity hotspots. So the, the big thing about, I think, uh, emerging infectious disease work is, is kind of these 3Ds. You want the, the density of population, humans and primates. You want them distributed across a variety of different contexts of, of contact. And you want diversity of, of primate species, because if you're interested in recombination, and Asia really has all those things. Plus, Asia has this wonderful cultural and religious tradition associated with primates. We, you know, Hanuman is, is a monkey god. The, the, the monkeys are viewed as, the monkeys today are in, in parts of the subcontinent, are viewed as the, the, the children of, of Hanuman. As such, there's a reverence and a tolerance that we see for them, um, which isn't, you don't really have that same association with primates in, in really any other part of the world. Um, Asia is, is where it's happening with that. And so at another point you brought up that I really enjoyed uh, hearing and listening to was, again, as we mentioned earlier, that you are a primatologist. So what is the role of the primatologist in all of this? You know, primatologists are the consummate generalists. We really, the, we're not particularly, I mean, and I, certainly there are some primatologists who are absolute specialists. Myself as a primatologist, I'm never the expert in the, the work that I do on my team. You know, the virologists always know more than I do, and they're very happy to tell me that. You know, the, the microbiologist, the same deal, the parasitologist, my husband often tells me he knows more than, than what I do about these things. But our training as primatologists and as biological anthropologists really allows us um, this amazing latitude. We, we're trained to observe and to, to look for interactions and look for connections between animals and people. And it's easy then to kind of open yourself up as a primatologist and look for connections between the virologist and what I do. The, the trick comes for the primatologist is to be able to, to have enough knowledge and have a vocabulary that allows you to really, to basically translate between the different disciplines because that's I think where multidisciplinary research often stumbles. Virology speak is very different than primatology speak. Bioinformatics speak I don't even know what they're saying, <laughs> but they, they, they speak it. But having, as a primatologist, somehow we seem to be able to reach out and to connect to each one of these different disciplines when, they, when individually they rarely are able to, to cross the, the aisle. So I think that's what makes us so critical on these, these teams. It's certainly, you always need the otherologist. They, they have the expertise. But the real power, I think, comes from the primatologist. Not just because what we know about the primates, it's what we know about people. Well, Lisa, thank you very much for joining us here on the Primate Cast. Thank you for having me. 
You have been listening to the Primate Cast, a podcast series dedicated to the study and conservation of primates around the world. Brought to you by the Centre for International Collaboration and Advanced Studies in Primatology of the Primate Research Institute of Kyoto University. Visit us online at www.cicasp.pri.kyoto-u.ac.jp forward slash news forward slash podcasts and follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash the primatecast and on Twitter at the primatecast.